It's spring 1886, and in Manhattan, Milton Hershey halts his horse and wagon outside a grocery store. Hershey is a 28-year-old confectioner with a bristly mustache, and he's drowning in debt. Last winter, he fell for another of his father's harebrained schemes. This time, it wasn't making fancy display cabinets or prospecting for silver in Colorado, but selling cough drops to New Yorkers. Eager to help his father find success, Hershey borrowed $10,000 to buy the equipment to make the drops. But they didn't sell. Now, he's back selling candy. And every sale counts. He retrieves a small basket from the back of his wagon and enters the store. Good afternoon, sir. Are you the storekeeper? I am. Pleasure to meet you. I'm Milton Hershey. I'm a confectioner. May I show you my candies? The storekeeper nods. Hershey puts his basket on the counter. Inside are bright yellow lemon drops, warm brown caramel cubes, grass green lollipops, and shiny candied fruits. The storekeeper reaches for a caramel, but then there's a burst of noise from outside. A barrage of exploding firecrackers. Hershey's horse whinnies in fear. Hershey races outside and sees his terrified horse galloping down the street. His wagon is careening behind it, tossing his precious candies all around. And across the street, the kids who lit the firecrackers under his horse are doubled over in laughter. Hershey sinks to his knees in despair. It's the last straw. New York's beaten him. It's chewed him up and spat him out like gum. It's time for Hershey to go crawling back to his mother's family, cap in hand, to start all over again. From Wondery, I'm David Brown, and this is Business Wars. In our new series, Hershey vs. Mars, we're unwrapping the sweetest business rivalry of all, the battle to dominate the world's $140 billion chocolate market. Today's mega-industry is unrecognizable from the chocolate business of 1886. Back then, chocolate wasn't something you ate. It was something you drank. But that's all about to change. This is Episode 1, Chocolate Town. Summer, 1886, rural Pennsylvania. It's dinner time and Milton Hershey is in the large farmhouse owned by his mother's family. Around the wooden dining table are his aunt and uncles, and they're waiting to hear what he's going to do next. Hershey's just returned from New York. He's broke and dodging debt collectors, but despite the sting of yet another failed business, he's determined to stay positive. I'm putting New York behind me. I'm starting a new business. Aunt Maddie sits opposite Hershey. She's wearing a black ankle-length dress and a white bonnet, and she looks concerned. I pray your good-for-nothing father isn't involved. 
No, no, I've learned my lesson. I'll be keeping him out of my business from now on. Aunt Maddie's heard that before, but this time, Hershey means it. Hershey sips his water and continues. I'm going to make caramels, but not just any caramels. When I was in Denver with Father, a confectioner taught me how to make caramels with milk instead of paraffin. Have you tried milk caramels? The uncles shake their heads. They're so much better than normal caramels. They're smooth and chewy, and they don't stick in your teeth. And they stay fresh for months rather than spoiling after a few days. You know, no one makes milk caramels in the East. But I know people here will love them. There's just, uh, one thing. Aunt Maddie steals herself. (laughs) She knows what's coming. I just need a little money. Not much, just a little to get me back on my feet. A few hundred dollars? Hershey's optimistic his aunt and uncles will give him the money. As owners of the area's largest farm, they're well off, and they've always helped him before. The family glances at each other. Then Aunt Maddie turns to Hershey. No, Milton, not this time. Hershey blinks in shock. Suddenly, he realizes how he looks to them now, just like his old man, a dreamer always chasing the big break and leaving a trail of failure in his wake. For the first time in his life, Hershey is on his own. He's going to have to start over from nothing. Over the next year, Hershey knuckles down. He rents a small room in a warehouse in Lancaster, Pennsylvania, and forms the Lancaster Caramel Company. He walks the streets, selling his caramels to the townsfolk from a basket. He uses the profits to buy a pushcart, and then he uses the extra sales to rent a larger space inside a red brick factory. As he toils, relations with his family thaw. Aunt Maddie and his mother help wrap his caramels in tissue paper. Then Aunt Maddie guarantees a 90-day bank loan so Hershey can buy more equipment to increase production. But Hershey's overstretched himself. His caramels are popular, but Lancaster's a small town. There's not enough demand to deliver the profits Hershey needs to cover his loan. As the repayment deadline approaches, Hershey faces ruin again. It's 1887, and in Lancaster, Pennsylvania, Hershey's cooking caramels inside his rented factory space. He leans over a large copper pot, stirring a bubbling mix of sugar and milk with a wooden paddle. He pauses to wipe the sweat from his brow, and hears knocking at the door. He opens the door to find a well-dressed Englishman in a top hat. Good morning, sir. Are you Milton Hershey? That's me. Most wonderful. I am an importer of goods to Britain, scouting for products. I tried your caramels yesterday, and I was most impressed. Tell me, how long do they keep? Not sure exactly. Longer than most, because I make them with milk. Several months at least, I guess. Several months? (laughs) Well, that's welcome news. Welcome news indeed. I would like to order $2,400 worth. Now, if the first order is a success, larger orders will follow. I'll send a check once the order reaches London. Hershey's jaw drops. 
he's been selling small bags of caramels for one cent. But with this one massive order for tens of thousands of caramels, he can clear his debts and start expanding beyond Lancaster. Hershey accepts the order. Then he persuades the bank to extend and increase his loan. He buys more supplies, hires extra helpers, and works around the clock to ship the caramels to London on time. And then he waits. But as the days pass, doubts creep into his mind. What if the importer was a con man? What if he takes the caramels and doesn't pay? Then, one morning, the mailman delivers a letter from England. Hershey tears it open. Inside is the check he's been waiting for. Hershey leaps into the air. Yes! He dances around the factory in delight before racing out the door. He runs toward the bank, ready to cash the check and clear his debt. He's halfway there before he realizes he's still wearing his dirty caramel-smudged apron. After that, there's no stopping Hershey. He expands his product range. He makes square, circular, and bean-shaped caramels. He sells expensive whole milk caramels that cost a dollar a box and cheap skim milk caramels that sell for ten a penny. He flavors caramels with cocoa powder and almonds and creates black caramels colored with soot. He distributes his confections across the country and exports them as far away as Japan and Australia. He builds factories in Pennsylvania and Illinois. Within five years, he's employing more than 700 workers. By the early 1890s, Hershey is one of the richest men in Pennsylvania and the biggest caramel manufacturer in America. It's 1893, and Hershey and his cousin are visiting the spectacular Chicago World's Fair. They're in the machinery hall checking out the steam engines that power the entire fair, along with the latest locomotives. But then Hershey notices something, something unexpected, a sweet fragrance cutting through the stench of oil that dominates the hall, a rich, earthy, exotic scent with just a hint of fruitiness. It's chocolate. Hershey follows his nose to the source. A fully functioning chocolate bar production line set up by a German equipment manufacturer. People have been drinking chocolate for centuries, but chocolate you can eat is still a novelty. The first chocolate bar debuted in England in 1847, but they remain an expensive luxury rarely seen outside Europe. Hershey is awestruck. He watches as the workers turn raw cacao beans into blocks of dark chocolate. Cacao beans are loaded in roasting ovens before being cooled and hauled. Then, they are ground and pressed into a gritty paste that's poured into a giant seashell-shaped mixer. Inside the mixer, marble rollers knead the paste for hours, massaging it into smooth, brown, liquid chocolate. After adding sugar, vanilla, and fatty cocoa butter, the chocolate is poured into molds. Once cooled, dark slabs of ready-to-eat chocolate emerge. Hershey bites into a freshly made chocolate bar. It's smooth, bittersweet, and absolutely delicious. He closes his eyes in bliss as the chocolate melts on his tongue. 
He opens his eyes and turns to his cousin. Caramels are just a fad. People only eat them as an occasional treat, but chocolate? People will eat chocolate every day. Fired up by the potential appeal of chocolate bars and the chance to rekindle his love of creating new confections, Hershey decides he's going to make chocolate. Before leaving, he buys the display equipment and arranges to have it shipped to his Lancaster factory the moment the fair ends. By February 1894, Hershey's equipment is up and running. He founds the Hershey Chocolate Company and starts making dark chocolates shaped like gems, flowers, and cigarettes. His chocolates make far less money than his caramels, but Hershey doesn't care. It's 1898, and Hershey's in a London club with a British importer of his caramels. Drinks in hand, the two men sink into expensive leather armchairs. Hershey lights a cigar and asks the importer a question. You've ordered fewer caramels recently. Why is that? The importer puts down his glass of brandy. Tastes are changing, Milton. People here are losing interest in caramels. They want the new milk chocolate bars instead, especially now that they're being made in Britain. Hershey raises an eyebrow. I thought only the Swiss knew how to make milk chocolate. Not anymore. The big chocolate makers here have figured out how Nestle does it. Cadbury started producing milk chocolate bars just last year. Hershey sits up at the mention of Cadbury. The British chocolate giant's been in the news recently. It's owned by a Quaker family that wants to improve its workers' lives by helping them escape the slums. To do that, Cadbury is building a model factory and village near Birmingham, a utopian village called Bourneville. Hershey's intrigued. Say, what do you think of Cadbury's Bourneville project? Difficult to say. I have to applaud it morally. The Birmingham slums are an appalling place. Jury's still out on whether it's good business, though. I figure they give their workers cheap loans to buy houses and half days on Saturdays. Seems, um, excessive. Well, I think it's a wonderful idea. I hope it works. Anyhow, back to my caramels. What do you think I should do? If sales keep dropping, I can't stay afloat forever. Hmm. Am I correct to think that no one makes or sells milk chocolate in America? Hershey nods. Eh, in that case, I'd say become the man who brings milk chocolate to America. It's early 1900, and inside his expensively decorated mansion in Lancaster, Pennsylvania, Hershey is playing pool with a buddy. As his peacocks strut past the tall window overlooking the yard, Hershey chalks his cue and delivers some shocking news. I'm selling the Lancaster Caramel Company. Hershey's friend freezes mid-shot. Really? Why? Yes, I'm going to use the money to build the biggest chocolate works this country has ever seen. It will make milk chocolate bars that'll sell for a nickel in stores. The friend takes his shot and sinks a ball. A milk chocolate bar that only costs a nickel? That'll be something. As the friend searches for his next shot, Hershey drops another bombshell. I'm also going to build a town for my workers. You know, like Bourneville in England, but bigger out in Dauphin County. Hershey's buddy puts down his cue. 
Building a town is crazy enough, but building it in rural Pennsylvania is even crazier. Dauphin County? Milton, there's nothing there. It's just hills and cows. Have you lost your mind? <laughs> Maybe, but thing is, I don't care about money. Look at me. I have more than I need. I want to do something momentous. What do you think? Seriously. What I think, Milton, is a court needs to appoint you a guardian. I mean, do you even know how to make milk chocolate? No. But how hard can it be? Hershey is about to find out. And he'll soon learn that it's way, way harder than he ever imagined. It's fall, 1900, and after dark in Dauphin County, Pennsylvania. Inside a remote barn with a no trespassers sign on the door, Milton Hershey is burning the midnight oil. He's trying to make milk chocolate, and the latest batch is ready. Tentatively, Hershey and his small team remove the bars from the molds, break off chunks, and pop them into their mouths. Gah! One worker spits his piece into his hand. The chocolate's awful. It tastes like spoiled milk and burnt sugar, and it has the texture of grit. Hershey looks at his deflated team. <sighs> Let's call it a night and try again tomorrow. It's been two months since Hershey sold his caramel empire for a million bucks, roughly $30 million in today's money. He's been trying to make milk chocolate ever since, but it's proving an uphill struggle because milk and chocolate or just like oil and water. The water in the milk refuses to mix with chocolate's fatty cocoa butter. Instead, the cocoa butter forms oily beads that float in the milk. And even when Hershey and his team manage to force these unruly ingredients together, the results are crumbly bars that turn rancid within two days. But for his plan to work, Hershey needs to mass-produce milk chocolate that stays fresh for months so it can be shipped nationwide. He knows it's possible, but the European companies that know the secret aren't telling. So Hershey must work it out through trial and error. Nights of experiments become weeks, then months, and then years. It's summer, 1903. And in Dauphin County, construction is underway on the 1,200 acres Hershey bought for his chocolate town. Builders lay the foundations of his giant chocolate factory. Workers with shovels clear paths that will become streets. In the distance, dynamite explosions blast open entire hills to provide limestone for the factory walls. And just across Spring Creek, bricklayers are building the first houses. In the months that follow, the town of Hershey takes shape. Unpaved paths become streets lined with spacious two-story brick homes that have indoor plumbing and electricity. Railroad tracks sprout from the factory and snake through the hills to connect the town to the wider rail network. The red brick factory's two towering smokestacks rise from the ground. But Hershey's still struggling to make milk chocolate. 
And at this rate, he'll have built a factory and a town for nothing. It's fall 1903, and Hershey's alone in his top-secret barn in Dauphin County, waiting for John Schmalbeck. Schmalbeck is one of Hershey's most experienced factory workers, and the increasingly desperate founder hopes he can help. Who's there? Schmalbeck, Mr. Hershey. Who else would it be? Hershey opens the door, sticks his head out, and glances side to side before pulling Schmalbeck inside and bolting the door. The pair work through the night. After several failed batches, Schmalbeck has an idea. Mr. Hershey, let me try something. As Hershey watches hopefully, Schmalbeck slowly evaporates milk in a copper kettle over low heat. After a few hours, they open the kettle. This time, the condensed milk is silky smooth. Encouraged, they use the condensed milk to make another batch of chocolate. After cooling the chocolate, they nervously take a bite. This time, the chocolate tastes smooth and creamy. Hershey's eyes widen. My word, this is wonderful. The pair repeat the process. They want to make sure it wasn't a fluke. To their relief, the second batch is just as good. By dawn, Hershey's got his recipe. Compared to European milk chocolate, it has a slight hint of sourness. But Hershey doesn't care. It's distinctive, and it's his. And since most Americans haven't eaten European chocolate, his customers won't care either. By 1905, Hershey's five-cent milk chocolate bars are on sale in grocery and candy stores across America. And they're selling fast. Thanks to Hershey, milk chocolate bars are no longer an exotic European luxury. Now, almost every American can afford one. New hit products follow. In 1907, Hershey introduces Kisses, bite-sized milk chocolate drops, hand-wrapped in silver foil. A year later, he creates Hershey Almond Bars by mixing almonds and chocolate. As sales boom, Hershey lavishes his profits on the town. He builds a leisure park and a zoo. He and his wife open a residential school for orphan boys. By 1910, Hershey is America's undisputed chocolate king. But money doesn't buy everything. It's March 1915, and in a Philadelphia hotel, Hershey kneels at his wife's bedside. Kitty is only 43, but her health has been declining for years, even though Hershey has spent a fortune consulting the best doctors. These days, Kitty can't walk or lift a book. Now, she's got pneumonia. Hershey leans closer to his wife. Can I get you anything, darling? Kitty smiles at her gray-haired husband. Champagne? Hershey grins. That's the fun-loving Irish woman he knows. He heads to the bar, but as he returns to the room with a glass of champagne, he sees Kitty's nurse standing at the door, and there are tears in her eyes. Kitty's death shatters Hershey. At 57, he steps back from his company and spends his days thinking of how to honor his wife's memory. His thoughts soon turn to the school for orphans they founded after it became clear they couldn't have children. It's November 1918, 
and Hershey's in his attorney's office. Mr. Hershey, are you sure about this? There's no going back once you sign. I'm sure. I have no children, so I'm making the orphan boys of America my heirs. And with that, Hershey signs the papers, signing over his entire fortune to the orphan school he and Kitty founded. Sixty million dollars worth of Hershey Chocolate Company stock. That's roughly one billion dollars today. Now, the school owns America's biggest chocolate company, a company so dominant it seems unbeatable. But the carefree years when Hershey faced little competition are about to end. That's because a confectioner named Frank Mars is starting a new business that's going to take the candy business by storm. But when Hershey and Mars first meet, it won't be as enemies, but as friends. On the next episode, Hershey battles the Great Depression, Mars finds inspiration in a milkshake, and a spy infiltrates Nestle. From Wondery, this is Business Wars. If you like this episode, please subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, or wherever you listen to podcasts. You'll find a link on the episode notes. Just tap or swipe over the cover art. You'll also see some offers from our sponsors, and it would be sweet if you could support them, and that helps support our show, too. If you like what you've heard, we would love it if you give us a five-star rating and tell your friends how to subscribe. Another way to support us is by answering a short survey at wondery.com survey. Don't forget to tell us what business war stories you'd like to hear. We should say something about the conversations in this episode. We can't know exactly what was said, but this dialogue is based on our best research. I'm your host, David Brown. Tristan Donovan wrote this story. Karen Lowe is our senior producer and editor. Emily Frost edited this story. Our editor and producer is Jenny Lauer-Beckman. Sound designed by Kyle Randall for Bay Area Sound. Our executive producer is Marshall Louie. Created by Hernan Lopez for Wondering.